Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor. And I am your other host, Sarah Century. And I am here to tell you about our very special guest today, Connor Goldsmith. Welcome, Connor. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. Ah, we're so pumped to have you. This is going to be like such a fun episode. I'm like, mm, can't wait. Well, as a bitch, as a bitch who reads comics, I definitely <laughs> feel like I belong here. You do. You, you certainly I think do. I asked Sarah when Sarah was on my podcast, I was like, so bitches on comics, like, are homosexuals allowed? Like, is it? A, she was like, no, we have we have men on sometimes. I was like, great, because I absolutely would love to come be one of your bitches. <laughs> we asked Paige Allen who their favorite bitch in comics was, and they were immediately just like, Bruce Wayne. <laughs> That no is yeah, whatsoever. fair, fair, absolutely fair. Warren Worthington III might be my oh, favorite wow. bitch in comics. <laughs> Good choices. So I know you from being on Cerebro, your podcast, which we talked about Jean Grey, which was incredible and very long conversation, and yet still <laughs> so much to be said. Cerebro is really good about bringing in all of these different voices for people to talk about the characters that they love the most. If I have to clean my apartment or something is whenever I put on Cerebro, because I'm like, this will be a lengthy discussion about somebody just talking about a character that they love so much. And I think that that's such a good format. And it's kind of really fun to listen to. So thanks again for having me on for that episode. But also, what made you decide to start Cerebro? So the quarantine made me feel super insane. And ah. <laughs> I was like, I need something to do. I am an extroverted type. I don't really believe in the introvert extrovert schema. But if it is something that exists, then I am definitely more on the extroverted end. So I'm usually out with friends all the time. I'm a very social person. And I found myself very freaked out by my lack of social interaction. So I decided I wanted to do something. I had always wanted to do something X-Men related, but I had never been sure if a podcast was going to work because now now I understand there are a lot of X-Men related podcasts, but the only one I was aware of was Jay and Miles. And mm -hmm. I felt like they had sort of cornered the market, right? <laughs> like, I was sure, like, is yeah. there any room for another X-Men podcast? They're doing it so successfully and so well. Mm -hmm. that it sort of seemed like that had been covered. But then my friend Patrick Willems, who has a YouTube channel about film, but does a lot of stuff about comic film adaptations, he has had me on his channel a couple times to talk about X-Men because it's my abiding obsession. My father's a collector, so I often say that X-Men was my first language. I came on in 2017, and then I came on again last year to talk about the Grant Morrison relaunch in 2001. 
And I just had such a good time doing it. And in the comments on the YouTube video, people were like, Patrick, you and Connor should do a podcast about the X-Men. And I said to Patrick, you know, I've said that to you before. And if you wanted to do something, I would do it. And he said, well, Connor, I'm very, very, very busy. But you should do an X-Men podcast because you don't need me to do it. You should just do it. And I was like, oh, but Jay and Miles exists. Also, I have no idea how to record or edit audio. Like, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. How would I even do it? Who would even come on my show? And he was like, Connor, <laughs> Connor, you know everyone. And I paused and I was like, do I? He was like, well, you represent two writers at Marvel Comics. You're friends with other professional comics writers. You know critics. Like, you could make this happen and people will find you because if the podcast is good, which he thought it would be, then they'll find you. And so I was like, well, that's very sweet of you, but I don't know. I knew I needed to find a gimmick, right? There needed to be something about it that was different from Jay and Miles because I didn't want to do the same thing they are doing. They're doing it very, very well. And I didn't want to be like the Pepsi of their Coke. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So no offense to Pepsi drinkers, but you're wrong. Um, (laughs) So what I settled on after I thought about it for a bit was the character by character format. Because what they do that is so smart and is the most probably helpful way to break people into these stories is they go chronologically through the comics, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But what I decided I would do instead was focus each episode on one character and then within that episode do the character's history chronologically. So people could jump around. They didn't have to listen to all the episodes because the other thing is when I find a new podcast. Jay and Miles is a great example. I first heard about that podcast when they were over 100 episodes in already. And mm-hmm. I got intimidated. And I've since, when Jay came on the show early on, which was very, very kind of him, and I appreciate that a lot because it got the podcast a lot of attention. Jay was like, oh, we have a guide for like where you can jump in. And I was like, oh, thank you, because I have wanted to listen to more of your show, but I always am like, there's like 500 episodes. I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> right. And the character by character makes it a little simpler because while I think everybody should listen straight through, because like the least listened to episode right now is the Toad episode with Tim Platt, because who cares about Toad? But that's sort of the point of the episode. It's very funny, I think. Mm-hmm. So, I like that episode. <laughs> I thought it was really good. So I think people should listen straight through. But if they don't want to, if they want to listen to the ones about their favorite characters, they can do that. And they don't necessarily miss anything. They just might be like, why is Zaladane now a running joke on this show? Because they missed (laughs) when that happened, right? But it's been good for me because it lets me focus my research. I have a pretty busy day job and I'm doing this pretty much at night. So if I need to reread stuff, I can go to like such and such character reading order and just bounce through where I need to bounce through. And Everybody has one character that they will talk about happily for hours on end. I mean, that is just sort of the the thing about this fandom. And I was able to start with my client, Teeny Howard, who is currently writing Betsy Braddock to talk about Betsy Braddock, who's one of my longtime favorite characters. So it was a nice bit of synergy. Having a creator on first in the very first episode got a lot of attention, which helped get more guests. It, It all sort of feeds itself, as I'm sure you've found with your own podcast. People hearing you, people reaching out saying they'd like to come on. You reaching out and people go, oh, you had so-and-so on. I'm a friend of theirs or whatever. It builds on itself. But that's the origin story. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like, it's it's about, podcasting is about putting a lot of chill offers out there, 
getting a lot of chill offers in and sometimes being very stressed to get someone on your schedule. Yes. And that is, that's like how it feels, you know, like, cause some people are very, very busy and, or they don't use whatever thing is that you're used to doing. And it's like, okay, we're on your team. We will, we will make it work for you. And then a lot of people are more like the three of us, like chill, you know, make it work. You kind of mentioned that your dad was a collector. You had been reading X-Men comics specifically, like since early childhood, right? I'm just wondering about that because everybody has such a different origin story for getting into comics as well. And I know that Essie and I have both talked, you know, endlessly (laughs) on many episodes (laughs) about that origin story. And once again, when I guessed it on Cerebro, there was talk of that as well. But yeah, what stood out to you about the X-Men and what do you remember the most, I guess, from getting into it? Yeah, I mean, talking endlessly is the point of being the guest, right? I was just (laughs) thinking, oh, God, I'm going on forever a moment ago. And then I realized, like, oh, you're the guest this episode because I'm not used to that. (laughs) That makes my heart so happy that you just said this episode. So my dad is an X-Men collector. He collected essentially from the 60s up through about 96. And then he lost interest like a lot of people did around 1996. I think, yeah, I think Age of Apocalypse was the end for him. He liked it Mm. and he was like, you know, I'm now in my mid to late 30s and I don't really need to be following this super closely anymore. And it felt like a good moment to stop, right? Because it was sort of this climactic event and then he had sort of been slowly losing interest over time. But what that meant was he had all of the 70s and 80s stuff in plastic, you know, he has a nationally ranked collection. Like his issues are, you know, people have appraised them or whatever. And his issues 1 through 100 of like the 60s into the 70s are very, very high quality or whatever. I don't know. I'm not a speculation market guy. So like, I don't know what to, but they're all, you know, very, very well done. And for Christmas this year, actually, he got me the first appearance at Betsy Braddock in Captain Britain. It's like a nine point something. And it's one of only like a 100 of them that are left. So that was really, Dang. that was really cool. Because those Captain Britain comics are hard to find. They're like weird Marvel UK comics that nobody mm-hmm. bothered to preserve because it was like a cash grab, right? So uh, basically, I was reading from a pretty early age, uh, not to brag, I just was. So like, <laughs> I was reading at like three or four. And I want to say when I was about seven or eight, the Marvel Masterworks had just started coming out. So he got me the Marvel Masterworks that was X-Men and the Marvel Masterworks that was Uncanny X-Men. And so the X-Men one went from issues one to 10. So it was like the first issue in 63 up through Kazar and the Savage Land in number 10. And then the second one was Giant Size X-Men up through, I think, basically right before Gene turns into Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And okay. so he was like, I don't know where you'll want to jump in or if you'll like this at all, but these are the comics daddy collects. Like, and you know, these are two jumping on points that you might like. And he was like, and you can't eat while you read them because they're expensive hardcovers. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> which I did anyway. And those old those old Marvel <laughs> Masterworks are beaten to shit. Um Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got an uh, essential X-Men from back in the day that those like telephone yeah. book size. Yeah. <laughs> and in they're the all like and white. black and white. They're printed on like the newsprint and they're just so low quality. But that was, I mean, that was it, right? Like if you were, I only have $14, you know. Yeah, (laughs) and it wasn't in digital, right? And it wasn't like outside of the events, it wasn't really in trade. So you had to buy the Masterwork hardcovers or those black and white essentials. 
Mm -hmm. But yeah, mine's beat all to hell for sure, just like your Marvel masterworks. My trades similarly are falling apart. That's sort of where I went to next. So I I ended up with those masterworks. I read them all and I bought all of the ones that, as or my dad got them for me as they were coming out. But the 60s stuff was never my thing. It didn't appeal to me in the same way. The 70s X-Men, starting with Giant Size, I was like, this is the shit. Like, this is it. I'm in. I was in love with Storm. I love Storm. By in love, I mean like in a small gay boy way, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was obsessed with her. I was in, the way we all are. Yeah, right. I was much, in, yeah. I was in love, like regular love with Colossus, which, you know, in re- <laughs> in retrospect, like I get it, Kitty. You know what I mean? Like we all make mistakes when we're young. <laughs> um, Pete. Another Pete. Yeah, I fully was Kitty Pride in many ways, right? Um, but so <laughs> I was reading those, but the Masterworks didn't, like, now they've gone in the Masterworks all the way up through a ton of stuff, right? But at the time, it only went, I want to say, up until, like, when Phoenix saves everyone from Emperor Deken with the Macron Crystal or whatever. Mm. And then I started buying trades because those did start coming out, the event trades. So I had Dark Phoenix Saga. I had From the Ashes, which introduces Madeline Pryor. I had Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants, and Inferno. And to fill in the space between them, my dad had reader copies in the attic that weren't his, like, plastic copies. So I was able to fill in eventually, but initially I was just reading the events. And those trades started coming out late 90s, early aughts. The, like, Fall of the Mutants, Mutant Massacre, Inferno ones, those are from, like, 2000, I want to say, and those are also falling apart on my shelf. (laughs) Um, And those were what really, I think, fully made me obsessed. I fell in love with the 80s Claremont material. I love those characters. I love that era of Betsy, as I was saying, who's a favorite character of mine. I love Punk Storm. I loved Kitty. I mean, I really identified with Kitty. I am of Jewish heritage, but was not raised religiously Jewish because of complicated family history. And... I really was struck by the way she would talk about being Jewish in those comics and the way she would relate it to the themes and to racism. And I mean, sometimes she, you know, would phrase things in ways that were not great. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) You know, perhaps maybe don't drop racial slurs to make a point, Kitty. But, you know, in general, that one speech she gives when they rescue Kurt from the mob where she's like, oh, he scares you? Like, a whole lot of my family was murdered in gas chambers because the Nazis were sure Jews weren't human. And a lot of people used to think that about blacks in this country. Some of them still do. Like, should you kill me? Should you kill that? You know, that speech really keyed me in. And I think that, I mean, by 2000, when these trades come out, I'm 12. And I knew I was gay. And there's so much sublimated queer stuff in the Claremont X-Men specifically that I felt very, very drawn to. Like, are Kitty and Ilyana flirting? Are Kitty yes. and Rachel flirting? Rachel Are and Magma. And Cal- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Magma. The things we could, yeah, talk about problematic. Your, your <laughs> yeah, famous, prob- your famous problematic, Magma. End. Yeah. But, you know, even the men, it felt like there was lots of tension there. I I fell in love with Excalibur specifically because I followed Kitty sort of into it. And I loved... Captain Britain and Megan. I was drawn to them because I loved Betsy. And it just all kind of spread outward. I think one of the things that really got me hooked was I had... Do you remember 
there was this role-playing game, like an official Marvel role-playing oh, game. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I never remember... played it, but I had the character guidebook that had these encyclopedic entries on every character and like their stats for the game. <laughs> I had the cards, but I had no idea how to play it. <laughs> so if we had met, then... <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I don't even know if it's the same one. I don't think this one had cards. Like it was just a whole... It was like a pencil and paper, like Dungeons and Dragons type thing. Oh, dang. It's the one where oh, it was like, yeah. it was like this person's like defense rating is outstanding or whatever, like sensational, you know, and it was very confusing. That was the thing because even if I couldn't get all the issues, I suddenly was reading, like I have never read in my life an Alpha Flight comic not written by John Byrne, ever. But I know all of those weird characters like Goblin and the Dream Queen because they were mm-hmm. like in the RPG. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, that's totally different than the card game I was thinking of. I was thinking that, yeah, it's kind of more like a magic game or something. Oh, I had those too. The Overpower, I think it was called. Yeah, they tried really hard to branch out into a lot of different arenas where it wasn't really happening, I think, at that time. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe if they try again, but who knows? Yeah, I think now there are like mobile games, like mobile card games. I think that's the wave of... The licensing future, but I'm too old. Yeah. And and frankly, <laughs> my obsessive compulsive disorder, like, I can't do something like that where I can't guarantee that I'll get every card. Oh, yeah. It, like, stresses me out too much. So I can't do that. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess that's sort of my origin story. Like, I hooked in to specific characters like Storm, Psylocke, before she got problematically transformed. I mean, like, Ninja Psylocke was cool, but was not the Psylocke that I was invested in. And uh, then Madeline Pryor was really the character that grabbed me. I read Inferno when I was, like, 12. And my dad was like, your mother let you buy that? And I was like, what? It's the X-Men. And he was like, right. But, like, I read that when it was coming out. So Madeline and Ilyana were sort of characters I imprinted on very strongly because those stories were so upsetting and epic and sweeping. I didn't realize that a comic book could do that. Like I'd read Dark Phoenix and Dark Phoenix is great and everybody knows that Dark Phoenix is great, but there's nothing more emotionally devastating to me in the classic X-Men stuff than that last issue of the New Mutants in the Inferno, when Ilyana sacrifices herself and they find the child Ilyana in the armor and all of that. Like, that mm-hmm. made me cry. And I'm like a 12-year-old boy, like, crying at an X-Men comic. <laughs> same, though. <laughs> Very much same. Yeah, I love that. I love all of Inferno, honestly. And I was thinking, too, yeah, the trade paperbacks that you were just naming are basically like a Madeline Pryor tour. Like, it's yeah. from like the beginning to the end yeah. for Madeline Pryor. And, of course, she's made a lot of appearances after that. Which we can get into because most of them, I think, are bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of messed up stuff where you're just like, you read Madeline Pryor going forward and you're just like, so... <laughs> So what? Hmm. All right. But yeah, I would say that in the beginning, I think she's such an interesting character because I was just reading a bunch of the early stuff with her and Cyclops again. Yeah. And I was like, these two are so good together. Yes. And it is honestly really heartbreaking that this doesn't work out because I feel like he is 
trying so hard to get away from the X-Men. And then whenever Gene comes back from the dead, then like that breaks him kind of in a weird way. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's like he was happy. And now he's like, there's no way that Gene and Cyclops were as happy. (laughs) No, never. They like never were, you know. Looking back over Madeline's history, not to make it be about Cyclops, because it's not about Cyclops, right? But but her inception was about him. Like, she's created yeah. as a love interest. So he's, you know, it's, it's important to talk about that relationship because it was meant to be a happy ending. I mean, that was Claremont's intention. Yeah, and then everything that happens in X-Factor, I'm used to reading X-Factor and not reading, like, the early Uncanny stuff. Mm. And then So whenever I was reading back through it, I was just like, it gives a lot of context for how very messed up he is yeah. in X-Factor. Because you're just like, yeah, this guy is, like, never really going to be able to leave the X-Men after this. Like, no, because he blew he up his whole so life hard. to go back yeah, to Gene. a 100%. The thing that I really love about talking about the X-Men is it kind of just feels like you're gossiping about, like, some friends. About real people, like, yeah. Did you hear? Did you hear what, what, what he did for her? The gossip thing is so true. I've been told, actually, because I didn't notice this until I had an X-Men podcast, but with a few exceptions, I tend to refer to Storm as Storm for whatever reason, but... Most characters, I default to calling them their civilian name. So <laughs> when I'm talking on the podcast, I'll be like, and then Eric says to Charles, this, that, and the other. They were like, you know, <laughs> can you believe what Scott said to Betsy before he and Warren did this? It does sound like you're talking about your friends from high school. <laughs> and it's like very passionate too, but like a little bitchy, you know? There's like a little, little edge to it, you know? Oh, listen, when it comes to Scott and Gene, I'm more than a little bitchy. <laughs> Yes, I was wondering, too, about that because, well, obviously, whenever I was on Cerebro, we talked a ton about Jean Grey. So talking about Madeline Pryor sounds very fun because I love Jean Grey, but I also really love Madeline Pryor. I think that there are two characters that, I mean, I just wish things were better for them, I guess, through, like, writers and stuff. Yeah. It seems like (laughs) there's just been a lot of missed opportunities between them. And I know that their first interactions were so contentious, obviously, and ended in things going extremely badly for Madeline. But I think it makes Jean a better character, right? Even looking at things just as a Jean fan, it's like having Madeline there makes Jean more interesting. And also, if she could make peace with Madeline, then I feel like a lot of things would change for her. Yeah, well, Um, all I want is for Madeline to come back as herself and for mm -hmm. them to figure out like herself rather than I'm a crazy goblin queen, you know, and like for them (laughs) to figure out their relationship because Jean lost her entire family while she was dead. Right. Like the Mm -hmm. end of Gray's storyline happened while she was in the white hot room. Rachel and Jean have an awkward relationship because Jean is just never really going to be able to think of herself as Rachel's mom. She's just not in a way that ironically, she does feel like Cable's mom. Mm-hmm. when that's actually like biologically Madeline's child. But the Rachel of it all is really complicated for her. That's the only blood relative she has left, really. And I think that she and Madeline, if Madeline was sane and Jean wasn't as aggressive as she tends to be at the mere suggestion of Madeline, they could have a really interesting sisterly relationship, I think. 
I think so, too. That's what I wish for both of them. I think that that would be great. I just really wish, honestly, that this had happened before because I feel like every time they do bring Madeline back, it's always here's this hysterical evil woman who is beyond redemption. And I think even in the context of Inferno, that wasn't ever true. So it's just kind of obnoxious to see it Well, it depends because it's not true in the Claremont issues of Inferno. Right. But the Simonson issues of Inferno come in with a very specific purpose, the X Factor issues, which is absolving Mm -hmm. Scott and Jean. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's interesting because the issues bleed into one another very seamlessly. And when I was a kid, I wasn't conscious of the fact that it was multiple writers, right? Mm-hmm. But part of why Madeline is so crazy in that arc is because Claremont is very clearly writing from a position of sympathy for Madeline. And Simonson is not. And I find that interesting because that's why Simonson writes such an effective gene on some level. Because Jean mm-hmm. has no sympathy for Madeline until... <laughs> right. Until the moment she discovers that Madeline is a clone of her. And then it becomes, like, suddenly it's about Jean. So Jean's like, we can save you. But before that, (laughs) when she was just Scott's wife that Scott had abandoned, Jean is like, what a callous, manipulative bitch. Like, so it's really, I find that fascinating. I think what you said about how they're two different characters is really the important thing. And I think what, what upsets me about the way Inferno resolves. Because I think Inferno is the peak of the Claremont run. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I don't think I would love Madeline the way I do if not for the way she was wronged and demonized and murdered. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. By editorial. I don't mean murdered in story because she dies by suicide. But I'm defensive of her because I feel that something bad was done to her. And you can tell that Claremont is upset about having to do it. You can feel that in the writing, that Claremont knows it's an unkind and unfair thing to do to this character. Mm. And the thing that upsets me about the way Inferno ends is that Jean gets to absorb Madeline's memories. And the resolution is essentially, Madeline wasn't a real person. She was just a piece of Jean that was stolen and now Jean has incorporated her and it doesn't matter that anything happened to Madeline. Which... As someone who read her six years of stories before the retcon that she's a clone of Jean, it's very unsatisfying because Madeline has her own character arc. Madeline has her own personality. The thing about From the Ashes is Scott and the X-Men are disturbed by how much Madeline resembles Jean. But part of why it's disturbing... I mean, first of all, Mastermind is exaggerating the resemblance with his power. So how much they actually look like one another initially is not super clear once Mastermind's out of the picture. But they look close enough to one another that it disturbs the X-Men. And part of why it's disturbing is not just, oh, she looks like Jean and we miss Jean. It's that she's very, very different from Jean. And Scott wants her initially to be Jean, but she isn't. There's that very iconic panel where he asks her if she's Jean reborn and she punches him across the face. Because fundamentally, she's a very different person. She's a tomboy. She wears a dress on a special occasion, but like usually she wants to be in her flight suit, in her plane. She has nothing. She has no family. She didn't grow up 
in an environment where she was supported particularly. That's very clear from her early stories, even though she never tells us about her backstory. But like, no one shows up to the wedding for her. They're all Scott's friends. You know what I mean? She doesn't seem to have any family. And that all is helpful with the retcon that she's a clone and that she doesn't have memories she can access. But in the initial stories, what's clear is she's had a rough go of it She's a rough-and-tumble kind of person. She knows how to use a gun. She's a professional pilot. She's the sole survivor of a fiery plane crash and has terrible survivor's guilt about that. It happens to have been the same day that Jean Grey died on the moon for the intrigue. But mostly, she's a different kind of person. And, you know, it's funny. I just did an episode on Moira McTaggart for Cerebro, and we talked about how... While we love the Moira X retcon, the thing that it gets rid of is that staunch human ally of the X-Men and the idea of whether that is an important thing to have in the metaphor. And Moira is the original, obviously, but Madeline was that also. There's incredible stuff in the 80s. There's a fill-in issue, I forget the number, that Carrie Gamble draws, where Madeline contemplates suicide because her baby's been stolen and Scott's abandoned her and the Marauders put her in a coma and all of that stuff. Right. And Alex talks her down. And she's just like, listen, I gave up everything to be with a mutant because I loved him and I believe in the cause. And everything that happens to you guys feels like it happens to me. But I'm not a mutant and I don't have powers and I can't do anything. And she feels helpless. And over the course of the 80s, she then follows them to Dallas for Fall of the Mutants, sacrifices Mm -hmm. her life alongside them to stop the adversary, and then becomes the girl Friday in the Outback and the heart of the team. She designs their new logo. She runs all their communications. She becomes essential to the functioning of the X-Men. And then editorial is like, you got to get rid of this character and make her evil. So it's a very (laughs) kind of... It's a tragic story because she was the type of character that the X-Men don't usually have. And I think losing that was unfortunate. Yes, I would agree 100%. I mean, even if Inferno had to happen, you could have kept her around for something, right? Yeah, it fe- well, and unfortunately, like, it seems the directive was specifically get rid of her, right? But yeah, I'd like to think, I mean, she only becomes the Goblin Queen because Sam tricks her in a dream into selling her soul. She says, well, in a dream, what's the harm? And he's like, it's never just a dream. <laughs> and then Nastir convinces her to do more bad stuff. And she is sort of, it's too late by that point. But surely you could tell a story where Inferno ends with her realizing, what am I doing? This is my child. And actually finding a way to come back down to Earth and become herself again and rebuke Limbo and all of that. But it's just not what happens. It's like I've talked to you before and, you know, you're a big Emma fan. You're an Ilyana fan, a Mm -hmm. Madeline fan. So I'm starting to sense a theme. (laughs) Could you be? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think I'm speaking for both of us, but I don't think I'm wrong to do so that we both also really love those characters. I feel a lot for characters like Ilyana, but I do feel like Ilyana actually ended up with a pretty heroic arc for the most Mm -hmm. part. Uh, Sometimes not, like depending, you know, (laughs) but... 
she got kind of a heroic arc. Madeline got the opposite of a heroic arc. And then yeah. I feel like almost every time she shows up since, they're just like, no, she's still evil. Maybe with the exception, like, of Mutant X a little bit, like, which was weird, but that was, she was kind of good in that, right? It's complicated, right? So there's the Mutant X story, which is an alternate universe where she definitely is good, and she gets corrupted by demonic forces again, but in that universe, she does it to protect her son. So it's a different vibe. But that's because Scott and Jean don't exist in that world, right? Right, they weren't there to terrorize her. (laughs) Right. Um, I would say the most heroic Madeline's been allowed to be since Inferno is in X-Man, which is a very weird book, Spinning Out of Age of Apocalypse. So weird. There's a lot of confusion as to whether the Madeline in X-Man is Madeline at all, because she's an astral ghost reconstituted from fragments by Nate Gray. And then in the final arc of X-Man, she turns to Nate and is like, I'm actually an evil Jean Grey from an alternate dimension who replaced your Maddie months ago. Yeah, big surprise. Normal stuff to happen, right. And so replace your Maddie months ago is fine because then you can tie it specifically to X-Man 52 where she starts to rapidly age and like her her form is kind of coming apart and she abandons Nate. Mm -hmm. And you're like, that must have been where Evil Jean picked her off. But then in the following issue, Evil Jean is like, did you really think you could create life? Like there was never a Madeline. Like, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense. That simply doesn't make sense because like Tessa read her mind. It was Madeline. Like there were all kinds of, she had all the memories. There's no way Evil Jean would remember all that stuff. I mean, it's a retcon, right? But it's a retcon that doesn't work. So I actually made an explainer recently on Twitter because here's the thing. People keep asking me to do a Madeline Pryor episode of Cerebro. And I understand why they want that because she is the character I'm most passionate about. And it's a bit odd, therefore, to people that I haven't done one. The fact is, it's a couple things. One is... I love what Zeb Wells did with her in the first arc of Hellions. That was Mm -hmm. obviously an evil Maddie, but it was of a piece with Inferno. It was a Maddie who is broken by what has been done to her. And the writing is sympathetic to her. She Mm -hmm. is the victim, even if she's reacting to that by hurting other people. So I really liked that. And I kind of want to see where, if anywhere, that plot is going before I would do an episode on her. The other thing, and I'll just be really candid in a way that I don't like to, I don't know, I feel awkward saying this on my podcast, like I'm like auditioning or something, but I've mentioned it in passing before. My big bucket list thing that I would love to do, that I would love to do, is write a story about Madeline for Marvel at some point. And so it feels like a bad idea to do a three-hour episode where I give all of my thoughts on this character that someday I would love to write a story about. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because then I'll have given the milk for free, I guess, is what I'm (laughs) saying. Like, I did write that explainer recently because people are like, when is Madeline Madeline? I'm like, Madeline is Madeline up through Inferno, then I think from X-Man up through 52, and then here's the thing that is a great relief to me, but that people don't seem to understand, is the Matt Fraction Madeline of the Sisterhood arc is the evil Jean from the end of X-Man. The only way you would know that, I mean, first of all, she calls herself the Red Queen, which is what that evil Jean calls herself. But also, Fraction gave an interview to CBR where he was like, oh, Maddie's dead. That's the Red Queen who ate Maddie. And it's like... Oh, dang. Oh, 
Right, but it's like, okay, so you brought back this obscure plot from the very end of X-Men and you just have all the characters assume it's Madeline and you never say on the page that it isn't. But that was a, a tidbit that I was extremely thrilled to discover because in that arc, Madeline rapes Scott. Yikes. And I was so appalled by that. I think it's an appalling story, frankly. I'm not big on the Fraction X-Men overall, um, right, if I'm being real. Yeah. But part of why I'm not big on the Fraction X-Men is because I find that storyline really disgusting. Um, and at the very least, the fact that it wasn't Madeline, it was the evil gene of Earth 97, 95 or whatever, that helps. But then when she's resurrected by Brian Wood in his all-female X-Men team run he doesn't seem to get that it wasn't Madeline in the sisterhood arc because it's not made obvious in the Braxton story. So it's a little hinky at this point. And I think that the best way to go would be to ignore pretty much everything that happened between X-Men 52 and Hellions 1. Yep. Um, Sounds good. <laughs> which when when Jordan White was on my podcast and I said that, he I said, frankly, you could just ignore everything between Inferno and Hellions. And he's like, yeah, I think that's the right thing to do. And I was like, I'm so glad to hear that from the senior editor of the X office. Uh, he also apologized. I was like, well, I'm a huge Madeline Pryor fan. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. Because it had just happened. Like the Hellions <laughs> arc had just concluded. Uh, and then we argued about whether she was a piece of Gene or not because I raised the X-Man point it was funny it was he's great i love jordan but you know it is complicated because she's a character that's just built on retcon on retcon on retcon and i think though that there is a core essence to that character and a core appeal to that character that is unique in the way that you know we talk about emma you noted like emma iliana madeline and i would add betsy oh yeah good point and Kanon now that she gets to be a real character. Those are all characters I've been very drawn to my whole life. I was very drawn to Kanon in the 90s when she was revanche mm -hmm. because I like women characters, period. Like, that's just my, you know, it's a gay cliche, but like for me, I don't know, it's complicated. I have like a lot of, if we're going to get like real personal on this podcast, like I had a moment in my early 20s where I wondered if I was trans. Like I decided ultimately I didn't think I was, but... I've always identified really profoundly with female characters, with women in my life, with femininity, with stuff like that. So it was a confusing thing for me. And I have a lot of friends who are trans women. And I've talked to them about this and they're like, yeah, well, it makes sense that you love ex-women. The joke has been made many times. Um, Danny Kinney said it recently on Twitter that like the Claremont to queer pipeline is like <laughs> extremely real. But... I've just always been drawn to these female characters who are not just larger than life, which all of the X-Men female characters are, but specifically who, who go through a process of the heroes not trusting or believing in them, who are seen as bad women by the heroes. I think this is why I love Punk Storm specifically more than any other incarnation of Storm. Because like when everyone reacts like, oh, Storm's like gay and kills people now. It's this, you know, <laughs> Betsy is the original X-Man character who goes through this the way that Emma does in Morrison. Mm -hmm. Like they don't trust Betsy. Betsy is a spy. Betsy is a killer. Betsy is posh and from a rarefied background and like a little pretentious and they find her off-putting. And there's something about these women who aren't readily accepted as superheroes that I find very, very compelling. My favorite DC Comics character is Renee Montoya, who I think has 
kind of a similar journey of like the heroes don't trust her at first because she's a cop, but then also right. because she's not she doesn't have a superhero's temperament. Like I love the 52 story where she becomes the question Same. because I mean, I love Greg Rucka just generally. I actually identified really profoundly with an interview Greg Rucka gave once when he was asked why he writes female protagonists so often. And he said that like he does feel somewhat like female identified, but because he has no interest in transition, he would feel like very pretentious or appropriative claiming it. So he doesn't. And I think I'm often kind of like in that nebulous space. I don't know what that is. I think that comics are always escapism for people though, right? And I think that as a young gay boy, I saw myself in female characters like Ilyana or like Emma who were not trusted or who were seen as bad somehow. I mean, with Ilyana, the reason I think she gets a heroic arc is because she's a child, right? And you can fix a child, essentially. Like, they're young, they can grow, they can become a better person. Emma, no one's willing to trust because she's a whore, right? Like, it's this very... Like, she's evil and bad, and she's an older woman, and there's no fixing her. She's made her choices. And she kind of does, right? They're kind of playing with these classic ideas of this schoolmistress who's, like, has all these secrets and doing bad things that we don't see, you know, and, like, all of that kind of stuff. And making her literally the other woman, as Morrison does, is an attempt to tease out, I think, the expectations placed on female characters in these stories because I think it's very clear that Morrison is sympathetic to Emma more so than Morrison is sympathetic to Jean, even though Morrison writes an incredible Jean and clearly has a lot of affection for Jean as well. But in their interaction, it's like, well, Emma does something bad. You shouldn't try to seduce someone's husband, right? But Jean treats her like garbage, you know? Yeah, but does it mean... (laughs) Right. So it's just an an interesting thing for me. And I think that as a gay boy who never saw myself in things, the closest thing I could come to when I was sort of developing that consciousness as a young man was, you know, seeing Kitty Pride as someone who was trying to find herself and who had crushes on boys and who just wanted the grown-ups to pay attention to her and all of that. I found that very identifiable. Characters like Madeline or Emma, I mean, it's always Scott, right? It's like this guy who you shouldn't want because he's bad for you and he's not nice to you. And just being in the relationship is, it diminishes you on some level. But all you want is to have that, you want what everybody gives Scott and Jean. You want that splash page where she's in the beautiful wedding dress. Like, you want that. But you're not allowed to have it because you're not a good girl. Mm -hmm. You're not the hero. Mm -hmm. You're a villain. You're a bitch. You're a whore. You're whatever. You're the goblin queen. That, to me, was very, I guess, relatable as a gay adolescent trying to... Because I felt... I mean, I was the only out gay kid in my class in high school. And I didn't come out of my own volition. So... That was complicated for me. And I think a lot of people saw me as an undesirable element or as a threat, you know, as something scary, right? The reason we first connected, actually, is that you wrote an incredible article about how Madeline Pryor finds her power by becoming a sexual threat. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how it's like, 
you really wish a lot of times that they had more agency just to explore that. And I mean that for both of those characters. It's like Jean Grey would benefit so much from that. And like, I think that that's kind of what is almost intrinsically tragic in those characters is it's like, yeah, I mean, Jean is written like that, but that's its own like weird, depressing, like repressed, <laughs> like role that she has to play. Um, yeah, and yeah, sometimes you just wish that you could tell them that you know, and be like, "Girl, respect yourself." Like, <laughs> there's get away from Scott Summers, <laughs> like please. And part of what I love about Morrison's Jean is that like Morrison's Jean is horny. Morrison's Jean wants yeah. to fuck Logan. Morrison's Jean, yeah, she totally like, does. she's a real person. She has urges, even as she's becoming Phoenix and becoming less human. The human element in her that is really sort of primordial comes through in a way that I think often Jean is written at a remove from the reader. Because it's like, yeah, and they'll be like, oh, well, like, that's Phoenix, you know? It's like, there's always something to blame it on. There's always an excuse, like, right. Maybe she just wants to have sex with Logan. Right, and that's <laughs> like, the thing. Maybe. The thing with Madeline is that even before she was evil, Claremont let Madeline be sexual. Yeah. Like, Madeline Her and Cyclops, and like, on the jet. <laughs> fuck, a ton. They send yeah, Xavier yeah. a picture from their honeymoon of them <laughs> in a little heart-shaped bed in a motel somewhere. <laughs> Like, hey, Charles, like, hope you're well. And I'm like, this is a naughty picture to send to your father figure. (laughs) And that's just Chris Claremont being a little pervy, which God love him. Like, he's my favorite (laughs) pervy grandpa of all time. (laughs) And I don't mean to call him a grandpa to say, like, you're old. I just mean, you know, he's my forebear in that sense, right? Like, he's... 10 years older than my father and shaped me in a a very similar way because I was reading these comics so intensely as a young man. My father has said that the craziest thing about listening to my podcast, which he does and enjoys very much, is, you know, he loved the X-Men because they were cool stories. And listening to me talk about it and listening to the guests that I bring on who are sometimes trans or people of color or, you know, disabled or other marginalized identities that they bring to the table he realized that he never saw himself in the metaphor the way that I did. And he's like, it's no wonder that I lost interest as I got older and you are now in your 30s and making a podcast about it. Like, he's like, it was completely by coincidence, but I gave you this thing that I loved so that we could talk about it. And it clearly struck a chord in you that was very, very deep. And he's glad that that could happen. But it is, it is interesting. It is odd how that just sort of came together. And I think it is these women, and specifically, like, the women that the rest of the characters tell they're wrong. I think Polaris gets into that sometimes. Like, all of the ones that I love most are the characters that are told they're evil or crazy or slutty or whatever. Yeah, right. That's the funniest one, right? Is like Polaris is like pretty, I would say, you know, she's in a monogamous relationship with Alex a lot of the time and like all of that. And then it's like, but then she gets possessed and we can all tell because now she's Now she's a bad girl, right? (laughs) And that's why actually the Chuck Austin Polaris, much as Chuck Austin's run is infamous for good reason and much as the Polaris arc in that story is pretty sexist, Letting Polaris have a little fun without being possessed was a real revelation on some level. I think that that (laughs) went a long way for the character to some extent. 
Yeah, I mean, I just, that's kind of the thing for me. I I saw myself in these women who were told they weren't good enough, that they weren't Jean, that they weren't non-punk Storm, that they weren't Kitty. I mean, I identified with Kitty in some respects, but I also very much, like, in the Kitty-Ilyana dyad, saw myself as more of an Ilyana. Like, there's something wrong with me intrinsically that people don't like, and... I feel weird about it. I never was ashamed of being gay, but I was scared of what people would think, you know? And for Ilyana, who literally turns into a demon sometimes and is afraid of what people will think of her, that's a very evocative... I mean, I think there's a reason a lot of queer people of all genders gravitate toward that character specifically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and then I think when I hear you talk about that, I'm also thinking about how... You know, Emma's secondary mutation is, like, literally to become so fucking, like, strong and hard and unbreakable. Yeah, and to have no feelings. And how that's something that, like, you have to learn how to do to survive in a super transphobic, a super homophobic world. And Sarah and I are of of the team of, like, we headcanon Emma as trans. And ever since I've done that, like, I just can't see her as not a trans woman. And it's so beautiful to think about, like, like, I think about the moment in, um, and this is jumping way in the future, but in the, in the Cine Grace Iceman run when... Bobby helps her with her brother who's having, you know, a hard time because he was gay and his dad was super homophobic. Yeah. And there's this moment where Emma says, like, you know, I know what it's like to have dad be super hard on you about something, like, that that you can't control about yourself. Right. Just ever since then, I've just been like, oh, my God. Like, this idea of, of cultivating such strength that it becomes a limitation, too, is just, I don't know, very, I think, very queer. (laughs) Hey, everybody, life is hard, right? Like, lots going on all the time. Guess what? I'm going to add one more thing (laughs) to your your enormous pile of things to do. Um, Which is, if you got a second, please do us a favor, rate and review our podcast. It helps us a whole bunch. If you want to see more of us and you want to see more episodes, I'm using the word see, even though, yeah. Um, If you want to hear more episodes, then that's the way to do it, really, is just go ahead and click on the five stars, the one that's five. Give us all of the stars. That's the way to do it. And uh, you can do that on many platforms. For instance, what, iTunes? That's one where you can do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Podchaser. Podchaser? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So if this is like a Podchaser thing for you, if like every week you're on Podchaser listening to Bitches on Comics, rate and review. Why not? You're just sitting there, right? Boop, boop. Boop, boop. Just in general. Just do yeah, it in general, you know? Yeah, just, just do it in general. Just, if you get around to it, just do it. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. 
It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I also love the headcanon of Emma as a trans woman. It's something I've always felt very drawn to. I mean, I think it's no coincidence that Grant Morrison has come out as a non-binary person. I mean, it's very clear if you read their work over time, and they sort of talk about it a little bit in Super Gods years ago, but there's a reason that Emma Frost is the most captivating character in that run, Mm. and the reason that Grant Morrison's Emma became the definitive Emma that all writers have attempted to sort of Mm. imitate ever since to some extent. And it's because Grant's Emma is all about, I mean, she becomes a Fabergé killing machine, right? (laughs) Like it's all about femininity. It's anxiety about your body and about being feminine in the way that you want and about people perceiving you as sexy and about people desiring you and and projecting it outward until Mm. it becomes literal armor, right? And... I don't know. I mean, like, again, I don't know. I I just, like, this feels like I'm just, like, doing therapy now. But, like, again, I... That's half the podcast. That's half the podcast, like, for real. I've never felt... I tried, like, a they-them thing once, and it didn't feel right to me. Like, I don't... The thing that's funny with me is, like, I, in, like, gay man world, she, her pronouns with gay friends is not that weird also. And I'm also friends with a lot of trans women who will sort of colloquially refer to me with like she, her pronouns, like, you know, or just be like, hey, girl, like things like that. That always really does feel good to me. But I'm also very comfortable like being he, him, being a gay man, having a beard, being like a very masculine presenting person. I mean, until I open my (laughs) mouth at least and then a purse falls out. (laughs) Then I gotta gotta say like, what makes a beard masculine? I just, I just think these are all much more... I mean, traditionally, you know what I mean? But I think there's so much more... I think what I hear you saying and what I'm trying to contribute is that these categories are much, they're much more flexible than we feel they are. And part of the way that I figured out my, you know, non-binariness in particular is actually through highly identifying with characters who I was like, why am I identifying with you? Like, we don't have the same gender. We don't have the same experiences. But that allowed me, always allows me to explore like another aspect of myself. And I think gender is just like another part of ourselves, you know, that is like, 
We all, we all like to think we know what the fuck we're talking about, about literally right, anything. Right. And that's why we like this being the therapy podcast, because we're like, is it though? Does it? <laughs> this is the preemptive interview <laughs> for whenever I do someday get to write a Madeline Pryor story. Yes. And people are like, why do you only write female characters? And I'm like, well, do you have an hour? <laughs> Um, because yeah, no, I think that for me, what I ultimately like the conclusion I sort of came to after I like spent my twenties wondering about where I saw myself was like, I'm very secure in a gay identity in like the way that people I think use queer now more, but it's like the Claremont eighties, right? Like the eighties sense almost of like gay as this expansive identity that included trans people. So I don't know. I sometimes feel like my vocabulary is like old fashioned. But like for me, I would feel appropriative calling myself like a non-binary person or a trans person or anything like that. But my gay identity also has like, for me, like a femaleness to it at times. I don't know. I And and for me, a lot of that is Emma Frost style stuff. Totally. I mean, I, I see myself in her. I identified very profoundly with her. I was a teenager when New X-Men was coming out. And it got me where I live, you know? Mm. And I, I do think that the problem uh, with it being canonical, I mean, first of all, like, would Marvel ever do that? Probably not, right? But the other thing is the Christian thing makes it complicated, right? Because you would think if she was, it would have come up because it would have been something her father would on page have an issue with. But I really like it. I think it makes a lot of sense. Her story is already so much about the way she reshaped her body to fit the presentation of herself that was in her head. Mm -hmm. like And kind of reinventing yourself a lot. And I feel like a lot of creators have reinvented Emma, yes. where they do kind of throw out the old with it. Because, you know, if we go far back, then it's like the lady who killed the horse, right? So, like, you, right. you kind of have to be like... Well, I love how Morrison waves that away as, like, those were the cocaine years, which you couldn't yeah. get away with now <laughs> in a Disney Marvel comic. But, you know, because that is just... Yeah, it was the 80s. We were all blowing rails. Like, sorry I killed the horse, but like, not sorry. I was coked <laughs> out of my mind. Um, yeah, I just, I think that, I don't know, I talked about this in the Emma episode of Cerebro, which is one of the first ones uh, with Alex Abad Santos. One of the things that has always spoken to me about Emma is in the Morrison Jean Emma dyad, like, Jean is naturally gorgeous. Jean becomes a model at like 18. Jean never had to work to be a superheroine who looks like that in the same way. Whereas Emma was not traditionally attractive and has paid both in money and in psychological suffering to become the woman she dreamed of being. And so it makes perfect sense to me that a lot of trans and non-binary people see themselves in that character. I mean, that how could you not, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And she succeeded. I mean, it's a triumphant story, yeah. right? Like, she is that woman now. Yeah. I think that's what I like about her. Yeah, she's just, like, such a fucking badass, you know? Like, I like that Emma, she gets hurt by stuff, but then it's more likely to, like, make her spiteful than it is to break her. Yeah. And I, I guess I just, I, I appreciate a bitch who, like, cultivates her spite as a survival mechanism. Same. I'm here I for I identify it, you with know? that fully. I'm a water sign. I do, sign. too. I'm like, I know the motherfuckers <laughs> who made my life hell. I, their names are in a book in a file in my brain. Well, that's the thing about Madeline too, right? It's like, I, you know, I'm not huge on X-Man generally, but I love that moment where she and Jean are face-to-face -face for the first time since the Inferno. And 
Jean makes some comment about something. I forgot. And Madeline's just like, oh, what? Are you worried that I'm going to come screw up your marriage to little Scotty? Your marriage that you had like right after my wake, by the way. Uh, <laughs> been there, been there, done that. And his little brother too. Don't worry about it. Like it's not, <laughs> you know. Um, I think that's just great. Before Inferno, there's that arc in Genosha where they experiment on her because they're like, she's not a mutant, but there's something going on. And she realizes she does have powers and she like psychologically tortures the races of Genosha and it's fucking metal. Like those issues are so fucking good. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I like her. I love Madeline Pryor. I just fucking love her. I have a I lot do, of ideas. Yeah. I have a lot of ideas. I think the reason it is important for Madeline to come back and to be allowed to be a heroic character is the same reason that it was important what Morrison did with Emma. And obviously Gen X had done it with Emma to some extent, but my issue with Gen X Emma is that Gen X Emma just felt like a different character to me. Mm. It's hard to reconcile the Gen X Emma with the White Queen to me, whereas Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to reconcile Morrison's Emma with the White Queen to me. Mm -hmm. Right. But also, isn't it true that they didn't even really have it together on that? Because White Queen possesses Bobby and like there's all of that storyline kind of happening concurrently to her with Generation it's, X, right? It's before. So, oh, yeah. Okay. So then she goes into Generation X. Yeah. But that's, she, that's such a wild... Yeah. The transitions are very strange with her for a minute there. It's very yeah. abrupt. Like they do the thing where all the Hellions die and then she's in a coma and then she comes out of the coma yeah. by possessing Bobby's body and then she finds out all the Hellions are dead and has like a complete nervous breakdown and becomes suicidal yeah. for a minute and then yeah. Xavier convinces her like, maybe you should try to be good. And she's like, I guess. And then she's just kind of is good. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I never really thought about that. But yeah, I She's guess like, so. She's huh, like, yeah, what? You could just be good? You can do that? Well, right. I Shit, I'll give it a try. <laughs> I like the arc at the end of Gen X where she murders her sister. That yeah. is very white queen. Like, but I'm trying to be good, but I'm not good. You know, like that. Mm-hmm. And now, Adrian needed to die. Let's be clear. Needed so, to. Had to. <laughs> it's not. Worst yeah, Frost. <laughs> by far, apart from, <laughs> like, perhaps even worse than their dad. So, uh, it's not the most morally ambiguous thing. But the idea that, like, it ends the book because the kids don't trust her anymore. And that is sort of her struggle always, right? Is, like, being told, no matter what you do, you will never actually be good because you're dirty. There is a stain Mm -hmm. on you that you can't get rid of. You are always going to be the white queen of the Hellfire Club. You are always going to be the woman who murdered that pony. And she's like, the fucking pony. Can we just move on? (laughs) It's like everybody who's really bad at Agatha from WandaVision for killing the dog. I know. Was the dog even real, though? Or did, like, Wanda create it with her power? I don't know. Sorry. Spoilers for WandaVision. Team Agatha, though. (laughs) (laughs) This is a great... This is actually a great example. Like, I think Agatha in WandaVision is completely in the right. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, she's evil, obviously. I mean, she killed all those other witches to, like, preserve her soul and killed her mom and all of that. But she's absolutely right about Wanda. (laughs) I mean, I would hope that by, you know, multiverse of madness or whatever, we'll see that she absolutely was right and that the Scarlet Witch is a threat to all reality and that you can't just let someone who's omnipotent and who has no real conscience about manipulating people to suit her own ends to have that 
power unfettered. Now, giving it to Agatha, would that have been better? Probably not, because Agatha from WandaVision seems pretty fucking evil. But I'm just saying, I think she was right. (laughs) (laughs) I do see a theme here um yeah couldn't you is there is there perhaps a yeah an, an ongoing sort of theme like i guess i just see where they're coming from yeah i get it too though i honestly i mean i'm all all about it even as much as i do love a lot of like the heroes i will also always be like i love the villains so much the villains the anti-heroes and then the yeah. people who like are like Madeline where it's just like, I mean, is what she did like worse than what Jean did? Because like... Right. Jean killed billions of broccoli people. She like, sure did. Madeline only fucked up one city. Now, it's the city I'm from and I don't like that she did it. But also, <laughs> she was she was under duress. Yeah, a lot of duress, I would say. Her soul got stolen by a demon in a nightmare. I mean, like, right. you know, cut the woman a break. <laughs> Those are some, you know... Exceeding circumstances. Like, that is not normal. So, who do you, what do you have coming up on Cerebro? Well, with Cerebro, I'm pretty excited about what's coming up because I have hopefully a couple more creator interviews coming down the pipe, which I always think are interesting to do. Um, In June, I'm doing an all queer characters month, which I'm excited about. Oh, so we'll do like Karma and North Star and all those folks. Um, I'm feeling good about that one. Still lining up guests. The thing about like what is coming up on Cerebro is that things change week to week so abruptly because of guest availability that I'm never 100% sure like what's coming out. But I always appreciate, even when it's a character I have never thought that much about, like the Toad episode is a great example. I have literally zero thoughts on Toad, or at least I thought so <laughs> until we talked about Toad for two hours and it was actually a really enlightening conversation. And like you said about like therapy podcast, I think it's often interesting to like finding out what makes somebody else tick, what makes your guests tick. That's the most interesting thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that part of interviews, especially when you're talking about something that somebody just loves, right? Because the media that we enjoy tells us a lot about ourselves. It says so much about who we are. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like with queer people, like it also feels like getting to see like almost another side of yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like, ooh, like I hadn't thought about that that way. Or, oh my God, I thought the exact same fucking thing, you know? <laughs> it's like, it feels so... Especially during the pandemic, I really identify oh God, with what yeah. you were saying about like, it is so nice to get on and just like talk to y'all about like, just to hear you talk about like Madeline and how much you love her is like, my heart <laughs> is warm, you know? I know. And like queer community, especially because I feel like I'm, that's really what I've been missing in, in Quar is like the fact that I can't go to a gay bar or like I can't go to a Ugh, queer yeah. night somewhere or whatever. Like it's making me crazy. And I think that what you said is really true. Like I, I think some of the most interesting interviews for me have been with trans women because like I've sort of said, a lot of I think the experiences that they've had with these characters are things that I also feel in a slightly different way. I mean, I was just talking to my client, Haran Walker, who's an amazing trans woman journalist. We were on the phone earlier and uh, I had said to her, like, do you want to come on? And she was like, I don't know anything about the X-Men really, but I have always been obsessed with like all of those female characters. And I was like, yeah, well, I'll give you a reading list and you can come on and do someone like not that major. You know what I mean? There's just something like other gay men has also been really interesting. Like the Emma Frost episode is really fun because it's just me and Alex Abad Santos like just 
fagging out about Emma Frost for like three hours, you know? <laughs> and there's just something very like, it feels like community. It feels like home. It feels, it's something that in the last year we haven't been able to have. And mm. I've really missed it. Mm. Agreed. Yes. <laughs> what other questions do you have for me? I feel like I'm just like talking so much. I'm sorry. I feel like SC hasn't gotten to say anything. <laughs> No, I mean that's that's the point of the podcast. Like yeah. <laughs> we okay. had you on, so you would okay, like okay, tell okay, us okay. all your amazing thoughts. Yeah, oh. you've actually I've just been like uh, you know, weaving in and out. I always have like a little list of like what I want to talk about. And we've hit on a lot of it. I wanted to talk about um, you know, how Emma as a trans woman was like really important to me and and I think a lot of people and um I love that. I mean, if they made it canon, I would like have a ticker oh, tape I'd parade. Die. I yeah, would just die. Yeah, that's like I truly, truly give me that. I mean, and it, it probably we, maybe it'll be twenty fifty, and we'll all be like old and yeah. gray. But like, I would still, I will still I will, have I will, the party. Yeah, I will have the party regardless <laughs> of like. I will put on the outfit. Okay. Yeah. Here's like, a mini series about like Emma's transition journey, like by a trans woman author. That would be all I would oh. ever want to read in my entire life. Truly. But oh my god, know. that'd be so exciting. And we could just pretend. And, and you know what would be extra great about that the emma frost origin ongoing that i hate we could just say is like a lie that she told someone because she wasn't ready to come out because like she that would whole, that whole origin <laughs> story did not happen right yes it, yes <laughs> um i okay yeah i just i love emma i think it's it's so nice to just hear you just like geek out and like gush over her she's my favorite i mean she's of the x-men in like the modern well now that betsy's out of her nightmare colonialism trap that she was in for 30 years she's climbing back up because i do really love that character but emma is since new x-men far and away my favorite character she's just there's no one else like her at all in fiction truly truly i think that is very much the case yeah i'm a big fan I just, I also really love, uh, I, old man Logan is like, what, what, what? But I really <laughs> love Emma in that because yes. she looks exactly the same. And Logan's like, damn, you look good. Yeah. And I don't remember who he's with, but they're like, you remember like, she's, she's like psychic, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, right? Like, you're not looking at her. Yeah. But Emma's <laughs> like, always going to be oh, hot. Oh, damn. Yeah, but Emma is going to make sure she always looks good. I like the future Emmas we've seen where she's like, well, at a certain point, darling, I just started living in diamond form all the time because I don't age as a diamond. (laughs) That is hilarious to me. It's just like, yeah, that's a creative solution. But it's it's sad also because we know that when she's in diamond form, she doesn't have complex emotion. Yeah. And so I think that her longing to preserve, now that she's become the person physically that she dreamed of being she's so afraid of losing Mm. it that sometimes she's willing to give up her heart which i find very powerful also i don't know that's that's gut-wrenching there's just a lot yeah yeah i i I agree well one thing that's coming up on cerebro that i can plug is that sarah century will be returning to cerebro for an episode on rachel summers Yay! I love Jean Grace so, so much, but, like, I just am Rachel Summers. Like, my whole, like, teen and 20s were just, like, me as a mess, and then I kind of got my shit together and Excalibur and, like, started sporting a really good, like, frayed leather jacket. Um, (laughs) But, like, yeah, I don't know. I'm extremely excited to talk about Rachel Summers. because I am really excited about that one, too. Yeah. 
Isn't she just the best? I fucking love Rachel. There's like a 30 minute, in the Jean Grey episode, there is like a 30 minute digression into Rachel. And so I was like, okay, you have to come back for a a real Rachel episode (laughs) because we can't keep doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. She's definitely one of my all-time favorite characters who just also does not even remotely get her due, I think. Well, my problem is I don't like the Rachel Gray years at all. And so it felt like for a long time, my Rachel was sort of gone. And now she's back, which is like extremely thrilling. Yes, she has her cool haircut and She's a lesbian again. I mean, that's the key. Like. <laughs> Yes, my favorite. Oh, my God. But yeah, so that's exciting. Um, I can't wait. Thank you both for having me on the podcast. I uh, I really have had a lot of fun. I hope I didn't bore your listeners to death by just nattering on for hours. <laughs> and if I said all. anything, if I said anything that was like inartfully phrased about like gender feelings, I apologize. Like this is just something that... I don't know. Like I said, this is this felt like suddenly we were just like in therapy and I was just like, let me just like, I don't know, freestyle here a little bit. But... Why not? I think that the idea that we should have super fixed ideas about gender is the problem. Like, I don't think that it matters how you talk about your gender because it's your gender. (laughs) Like, please talk to me about your gender however you want. I find it beautiful. I was very inspired. Much like Greg Rucka in that interview that I mentioned, I just do feel like as a very, like, traditionally male-presenting, cis-guy-presenting person who's comfortable with being addressed as a man, I don't want to be appropriative of very real struggles and oppression that my trans friends go through. You know what I mean? So I'm always just very careful about how I talk about that stuff. But when talking about like, why do you love these female characters so much? It's sort of unavoidable to get into kind of the muck there of of how complicated it all is. And just to just one more time, the the only reason we have the binary of trans and cis is because colonialism. So, well, that's true. That's you know, like fair. I'm just saying, it's a big soup, and I don't know what part of the soup <laughs> you're swimming in, but I'm not sure what part I'm swimming in either. Okay? Yeah. Well, everybody's on. Everybody has their own mind, right? Like everybody's doing exactly. their own their own complicated thing. Yeah. Um, well, in terms of what I have coming up, yeah, the podcast is as always coming up you can follow cerebro on twitter and instagram at cerebrocast you can follow me on twitter at dream of organon like the kate bush like i still dream of organon from cloud busting (laughs) um yes or at on instagram at connor goldsmith um i can't get connor goldsmith on twitter there's this account that's been squatting on it for like 10 years and hasn't tweeted in 10 years it makes me want to die (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah I have some exciting guests coming up including the return of Sarah Century I see you should come on we should do that I would love to and uh, I have a lot of client stuff coming up that's fun I make a couple small cameo appearances on this season of The Real Houses of New Jersey what? that's amazing I, I was very, I was very, very anxious about it. It actually, like, as we're recording the first episode, I'm in airs tomorrow, so it'll have already aired. So I'm not like spoiling it. But basically, one of my clients, I, I represent one of the cast members, and we're, it's just little things where I'm just like, and here's how the book deal works. Like, it's not, you know, I'm not like in the mix, but it's Adorable. my, it is it. my Real Housewives debut. And then, you know, just client books are coming out. I love my clients. I'm a literary agent. I don't think I maybe mentioned that at the top of the podcast. Oh, right. Um, You can find out more about all of my clients and their work at connorgoldsmith.com. And you can find out more about the agency I work for at fuseliterary.com. For comics people, the 
clients most of interest are probably Teeny Howard and Steve Orlando. But I also represent a lot of... I do kind of two different things. I do sci-fi, fantasy, horror, fiction, and then I do nonfiction generally. So like critics, journalists, celebrities, that kind of stuff. Um, for trans listeners, actually, one of the projects I'm most excited about is my client Gretchen Felker Martin has a novel called Manhunt coming out next year from Tor Nightfire. Oh, yeah. Um, which is a horror novel about, it's like a sort of a post-apocalyptic future where anyone with testosterone above a certain level has become a monster. And it's about trans women in the like post-apocalyptic world scavenging to get estrogen any way they can because if their hormones go out of balance, like they might become part of the monster horde. And uh, the way that certain cis women see them as a liability and want to get rid of them. So it's very provocative. It feels very current. Gretchen is a brilliant writer and I am really excited. You know, I'm sure not everybody's going to love this book. It's it's very out there and I can't speak to whether, you know, it's not my experience, but I, I found it very moving. Um, so I think that's an exciting one. I don't know if you can pre-order it yet, but that's a book I'm pretty excited about. Amazing. And uh, for X-Men fans, if you like ancient Rome uh, <laughs> as well, there's sort of an X-Men and ancient Rome style fantasy series that I represent <laughs> right. by author Cass Morris. Uh, the second book, Give Way to Night, just came out. The first book is called From Unseen Fire. Very strong female character, very female character driven, like strong female character sounds cl so cliche, you know what I mean? But it's about like women and their relationships with each other uh, and everybody has cool powers. So that might be fun if you like that. Um, I think that's it. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, why don't you guys talk about things now? I don't know. What do you want to plug? It's your show. Though, so like, I guess there's not... What do you want to plug? I'm just not we used to being a guest. I feel weird. <laughs> we, we plugged the show. Yeah, right. <laughs> Come back. Don't leave us. We love you. Uh, Connor, you are a damn delight. Thank uh, you. I, I love how passionate you are and how many varied interests you have. I think Sarah and I both relate to that. We read really broadly. We really care about a lot of different things. So it's it's always fun to meet another uh, person who's got their little fingies dipped in all kinds of puddles. I don't know why they'd be in puddles, but your fingers in my mind were in puddles. You know um, what? I'll go with it. We'll roll with that. <laughs> yeah, well, why not? You know, they weren't dirty puddles. They were like kind of shimmery puddles in my mind. Yeah. You know, is what it is, I guess. <laughs> All right. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for joining us. Connor, you're the best. Well, thank you again for having me. This was a lot of fun. And the second that the email was like, do you want to just come on and talk about Emma Frost and Madeline Pryor? <laughs> I was like, yes. That's Because frankly, that's all I do in my free time anyway. So it exactly. felt very much, why not commit that to, uh, to tape? Yeah, and to do it with us. It's so nice. Yeah, I was thinking too that every episode is the Madeline Pryor episode. Well, that right? is the thing. Like I, yeah, <laughs> I, I thought about, one thing I have thought about doing is at some point just like satisfy the frequent requests for Madeline Pryor episode to just stitch together the 10 <laughs> to 20 minutes about Madeline Pryor from every single episode of the show and create like a seven hour episode that just cuts in and out with different guests. Because I feel like I've already done it. You know what I mean? That's true. That would be amazing. A listener wrote in and called it the Moments with Maddie segment. And now I just sort of call it that unofficially. Because it, it'll just, it's invariably happens at some point. And I find ways, like in the Cypher episode, I had Annalise Bissa on, the editor in the X office, who's incredible. And she came on to talk about Doug Ramsey. And somehow, despite the fact that Doug Ramsey and Madeline Pryor have never met... <laughs> 
I managed to talk about Madeline Pryor before we talked about Doug in his own episode. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the moment I realized I have a problem. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we are who we are. It's really hard not to love Madeline Pryor, though, too. I mean... So many people don't, but I feel like a friend of mine wrote me an email, or it was a DM, but she was just like, I just need you to know that my girlfriend has been fully based and goblin-pilled by your podcast. Like (laughs) She she will not shut up about Maddie and Havoc. And I was like, love that for me. Yes, Connor, thank you uh, for being on the show and talking to us so much about Madeline Pryor and Emma and a little bit about Ilyana but now I want to hear more about that too. I'm hoping, I have a very specific guest in mind for Ileana, but yes. I'm hoping to do that episode in the next few months. But I don't know. It's, it's a very specific guest that I want to get and I don't know when or if I can get them. So I'm kind of holding off until I can figure out if I can do that. Sounds amazing. <laughs> are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And do you remember there's no I'm bitch? If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new, or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Eco meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.